0: I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. And that will be chapter 7. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 917. And we've been studying through this book, John's Gospel, for some time. And uh, it's been a number of weeks since I've been here on a Sunday morning. Uh, to speak with you and I'm thrilled to be able to do so but I think we'll start reading in verse 1 of John 7 and uh, even though it's a lengthier passage if you've looked at your bulletin already we're going to study through chapter or, or verse 24 but we'll read through verse 10 to start with we'll cover the rest as we go in a moment but this is John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 1, "'After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly.' If you do these things, show yourself to the world, John tells us in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about what or that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask that you first help us to understand it. And then having understood it, Lord, we ask that you help us to obey it. That you would use your word to change our hearts. We thank you for the time together and the study of your word We ask this in your name, amen. When do you suppose it was the last time that you misjudged somebody or something? We do it all the time and it's not so hard to do. And uh, some of us are more prone to it because of our personality or uh, our own personal sense of having a handle on everything or not. Uh, Some people will hang back and watch and think and maybe suspend their judgment until they know more where others of us will jump right in and uh, we'll think we know exactly what's going on and how it happened and all those things. This passage has to do with some of that today. Making judgments or making an assessment. But I think it will be of use to us if we'll acknowledge that Uh, Sometimes we do have a difficulty with this. And it really doesn't matter uh, the extent of whether we're talking about uh, things that don't necessarily matter. They're not a big deal. Or things that matter a great deal. Uh, We're equally as prone to be this way. Uh, Many of you know that I was on vacation a number of weeks ago. And uh, some of you know, I think because of a picture circulating, that I fish sometimes when I'm at the beach on vacation and I'll do that from a kayak um, and I'll usually go offshore a good bit in order to to do some good fishing and from that uh, perspective the beach kind of all looks the same so you'll want some landmarks like water towers uh, so that you don't get back a different place than you left from and that can be a challenge sometimes and one of the things that took place, and uh, usually my, uh, my family will, will watch on the live stream in Virginia a week later, so I've got at least a week before I get in trouble for what I'm about to say, <laughs> but I, was, I had, had, had a good day fishing and was headed back into it. I was on a different part of the island than we usually stay, and I really have to pay attention there because I'm not as familiar with the way the houses look. And just so happened that the rest of my family, my wife and kids, were were visiting with a couple with some children who rent on the same island, uh, but they're from Virginia. And it was right near where I happened to be fishing. Um, And then on my way back in, I noticed the place where there's no fishermen and no tents, a good place to land, because sometimes that can be a little tricky, Sometimes you might roll it in the surf and lose everything you've got, and it's a big joke. You, you want to minimize the disaster, and who watches it when, you, when you're coming in if, if there are waves. But there was this woman standing right where I need to go, and she had on this uh, very colorful cover-up, you know, that you wear when you're at the beach. It wasn't tie-dyed, but it was lots of colors and easily seen from, from way out. And the closer I got, I'd go over here and she'd come over there. And I'd go over here and, and I thought, what, who is this? And then this lady begins to do this dance that I've seen since I was a child. The only person I've seen other than my mother that does this is uh, Lucy on the Peanuts cartoons. Uh, when the piano's playing. and then It's my mom. She's with my wife and children, and they'd figured out where I was. I had misjudged the situation uh, based on surface appearances from a position I couldn't quite tell. When I found out it's my mom, this is great. And I I did beach uh, decent, except the last part there was a trough that I stepped into backwards and did manage to fall down. I didn't flip the kayak, but... Um, she and everybody on the beach did see that (laughs) anyway we misjudge things because we think we know what's going on when we don't and that's where we're going to end if you want to look at verse 24 this is how Jesus concludes the paragraph do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment there's three words for judging there so that's where we're going that's where we're headed this morning to understand how to judge, not by appearances, but to make right judgments. So by the end of chapter 7, the one we're studying, attempts are going to be made on, on Jesus' life. In this specific case, arrests. They don't materialize, but that will take place. He'll also be threatened by the crowds that are listening to him. And he'll even be mocked by his, his family. Things are changing drastically as far as his opinion publicly that is and where we saw him gaining popularity in the chapters leading up to 6 and 7 it's evaporating on him and after all the hostilities that were a result of his feeding 5,000 men and their families you think how in the world could that upset people well it had and particularly what he said after he fed those people and what they said to him the day after, and his telling them they were there for the wrong reasons, and so forth. Because of all this, we read in chapter 7, he doesn't walk in Judea. He stays in Galilee, and John tells us why. Because they're trying to kill him. That's one of the first times we see it here. We're going to see it a lot going forward. Ten separate times by the end of chapter 8 we're going to read of Christ's life being in danger and most of those references will refer to their plot for an execution. So it'd be a good place to ask what in the world happened? And if you've been tracking with our message series and studying uh, and keeping up with this well we we could go back and review those things but it is a big change, wouldn't you say? Uh, Just going from what we remember as children in Sunday school being taught the miracle of the loaves and fish. Feeding a multitude with a little boy's lunch. And now there are a group of people that want this man dead. And a whole slew of people who are thoroughly confused as to what to expect. Not to even mention his 12, the disciples. So right now he's a wanted man who can't walk through Judea. Without risking his life. When we pick up here today in chapter 7. It's about six months since chapter 6. Between that chapter break is about six months worth of of time that elapses. And we know that because it's been six months between two feasts. Back in chapter 6. John told us that it was the Passover feast that was at hand. And we just read a moment ago. That now it's the feast of booths that's at hand. Both of these were in the top three most prominent feasts and both of them were required that you go attend them if you're Jewish men and the booths or tents what that meant was this was kind of a, a way to celebrate God's taking them out of, uh, of Egypt with the Passover but then with booths they remember the time where they lived in tents so this was a camping feast they would make these temporary structures and camp in them it had a lot of ceremonial interests as well and a lot of teaching, but it was uh, about an eight-day f- festivity, and the entire country would, would gather in Jerusalem for this. So lots of travel going on. Keep that in mind. But the six months of a time that have taken, come off the calendar since, and the damage to Christ's popularity as far as His public ministry had already been done but here's something I'd like to think through just by way of illustration but just, just suppose there were such a thing as exit polls at the end of this feeding and the fiasco of a, of a discussion between the two of them and, uh, that involved him telling them that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood and people began to leave in droves such that he asked his disciples are you going to leave me too? and Peter says no where else would we go? but what if there were exit polls? do you ever watch that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying not to uh, get infected with a, an allergy toward politics across the board <laughs> you know what I mean? I, don't, I, I watched a little bit of those uh, democratic debates just to see you know, what could, we could expect um, didn't watch them very long. But there's those exit polls, right? And they have rules about them. You can't put them on air but, but after the polls are closed because there's information in there that gives you an understanding as to why or how the person might have voted, right? So if there are people leaving Jesus and we had some exit polls, what would the, the feedback sound like coming from these people? If there was a microphone, ''Hey, yeah, I see you're leaving Jesus.'' You've been following him since chapter 2. Uh, what's going on? Well, right out of that chapter 6, we could find, some of them may have said, the stuff he's saying is just too hard to hear. Uh, the, this is the way John described him, hard sayings. Americans have an allergy to hard sayings. They like easy sayings. Uh, just, Just chill out, man. That was when I was in high school. Uh, I don't know what people say now. Maybe it's just, say, step off. You, you, you're messing with my, my zen, man. Um, but we don't like hard sayings, and they didn't either. In fact, he told them they were following him for the wrong reason. Your motives are wrong. Nobody wants to be told that. Well, that's what he told them. Some of them might have just went for the bumper sticker. You know, uh, I'm offended. We should have bumper stickers that say I'm offended. It seems to be everybody's offended. Well, he was offensive to them. That was the bit about drinking my blood and eating my body. And that, what was the business about? You can't come to me unless my father draws you to me. In other words, uh, whatever hopes you had of being buddies is, (laughs) you don't vote for me, I vote for you. How do you like to hear a politician say that? Forget about voting for me unless I vote for you first. I'll let you know whether or not you should vote for me. I have a list. That would be about as confusing as what these people are hearing, right? And then the real reason John gives us, they just didn't believe him. Maybe they did. Maybe they thought they did. Maybe at this point they thought they couldn't. But that's the case. They're leaving. So we see in John 6 people leaving Jesus that had followed him from the beginning of chapter 2 and make no mistake these are the same reasons why people would not follow Jesus today why would people leave church they say hard stuff there the church is becoming more and more offensive right or is it just the same Bible they've been teaching forever people are more easily offended I don't know But church is a good place to get offended, especially if they're teaching the scriptures unvarnished. This business about him choosing us, you mean there's not a lot of control I have in this whole thing? These are tough things. So by the beginning of chapter 7, what's interesting, the way John's telling or recording the story, is that his brothers have an idea of how he might regain his popularity, to reboot his public image. They've they've got some some suggestions for him. And we saw that in the first few verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee because they're trying to kill him in Judea. Verse 2, feast of booths is at hand. Verse 3, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So if this is a big feast and there are people leaving in droves, there's probably caravans going down the road. And maybe that's when his brothers decide to approach Jesus and they say, listen, we've been thinking. You've suffered a massive uh, unliking on your social media. Everybody's unsubscribing. I think you can get them back, but you have to do it the right way. And doing it out here in the, the... the sticks is not going to work you need to go to jerusalem where everybody is there will be people in jerusalem from cities you've never been to they've never seen your face or heard your voice audibly they might have heard the rumors but you need to clear up what you all this bad press from before is a big misunderstanding and they need to see it you need to go down there where the cameras are and you can patch this up that's basically what his brothers are saying and you kind of, there's, there's certain times where, you know, if we could pause the, the movie we're watching and just think about what that must be like to have Jesus' brothers that grew up with Jesus come to him and tell him how to fix this mess. You know, this is a guy that spoke the stars into existence. Have you ever been doing something and somebody comes along and they think they can help you do what you've done a lot? I mean, it's kind of your thing. And you know that they don't know what it is they're trying to help you with. I don't even... That'd be the grandest example of that I think there ever was in all eternity. Jesus' brothers are going to give him advice. <laughs> but that, that's what we're looking at. And uh, I wish we could hear the tone of their voice or his voice and how he responds. But everything they said on a human level was reasonable it made sense that's what we would do right if, if, if you've got a, a, a public relations committee that's worth a hoot if you've made a mistake they can map out a, a plan for you to fix it but it's going to involve some work but that's not what's been done because this is exactly what Jesus wanted said and how he wanted it said it's just not what they would have done or said So it doesn't mean that they were hostile to him, that John tells us that they don't believe, but it does help us understand why there's a difference in what they say to do, go to the feast, and what he says, I'm not going to the feast. They still don't believe him. That's another scary thing to read. If the people that grew up with Jesus don't believe that he's God's son, what hope do we have 2,000 years later? It's going to be uphill. We've got more of the story here, but it's going to involve the same faith does kind of fit together with some things that were said in different passages where Christ's mother and his brothers go to him, try to get them to come home from his work because tensions are rising, and they actually say he's beside himself. Let's go get Jesus. He's gone off the deep end. He's going to get us all in trouble or thrown out of the synagogue. It kind of fits with what's going on here. Jesus tells them, though, just like he told Mary at the wedding feast in chapter 2, when she asked him to do something that it wasn't his time to do, he said, it's not my hour. It's not time for that. But then he says that they should go to the feast, that it wouldn't be a problem for them to go to the feast because the world didn't have a problem with them. But if he tried to go to the feast it would be a problem because he has a problem with the world and because he has a problem with the world and calls them sinners they have a problem with him because they don't like to be called sinners so that's what that exchange means between the two of them but here's another point we could pause it and maybe think between the lines what does that say about the separation between Jesus and his brothers he can't go to the feast because the conflict Stirring there in that big town is a very result of him claiming to be God and telling them that they misunderstood their Bibles as far as their traditions. Got him in big trouble. But his brothers, y'all go on down there. There's no problem with you. In other words, his brothers are more like the world than they are like him, even though they shared similar genetic material. But this separation has to mean something. Don't overlook that Jesus is a human. What does it What does it mean when you're on separate pages than people that are very close to you, and the things that you say to them um, have to be carefully put together? It made me think, reading some of the study material for this. Wonder if there's any thing involved in that passage of scripture where we. S- Learn that Jesus was tempted in all ways. Just like we are. Yet without sin. We have problems with that, don't we? We know what it is to feel the pain of a disjointed family. Or friends. Or being misunderstood. And I would suppose along the pages of history. There are men who have been cruelly treated by a public who misunderstood what they were on about. But at the end of the day, they had their family and their friends to fall back on who could support them and tell them in the evenings when they felt like failures, no, this is the right thing to do. And we're behind you. If nobody likes you, you know that we love you. But Jesus had none of that at all he's completely alone in this his family aren't even in the realm of understanding what's going on that should be a caution to us if his family can misjudge him so could we if Jesus is no longer surprising us by the things he says and does maybe we think we know him too well because he's surprising the entire planet through the gospels does he ever surprise us We have his answer to what they had suggested in verse 8. He's not going to the feast the way they want him to. So then what do we do with verse 10? Maybe we got somebody in the class this morning who's already read verse 10 and says, hey, wait a minute. Which one is it, Jesus? Are you going or are you staying? Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And some like to say this is a contradiction. Jesus lied to his brothers. You're not supposed to lie. So is this a loophole for a lie to my family? If I need one. Over Thanksgiving. Or whatever else. No. This is not a contradiction or deception on Jesus' part. His journey up to the feast, the way we read it, is marked with the utmost discretion. He goes in private where they told him to go in public. It's completely opposite of what his brothers had wanted. And in the Greek, there's nothing to suggest that he's not, with the words he used, leading them on to say that I'm not going at all. I'm not going the way you want me to go. So in this passage, uh, we don't have a contradiction. But here, and probably the last time I'll ask you to do some thinking, but between verse 11, and in verse 11, we... He starts John is describing uh, what's going on while Jesus is going up to the feast. I thought I'd mention in passing that this is the last time that Jesus will leave Galilee before the cross. We're rapidly approaching the last week of his life on earth. And for those of you who like to think or the more sentimentally minded, what do you suppose it'd be like for the man who spent most of his life in a certain region? Especially large portions of his public ministry. That's the last time he's going to see any of that. He's going down to Jerusalem. It'll be some time before he's hung on a Roman cross. But that, that, that's the end. It's kind of a goodbye. If you've ever been to Israel. Even the way it looks. It's incredibly different. From Jerusalem to the Galilee. And if I could only choose one for any other trip I'd take. It'd be the Galilee. It's beautiful there. And who created it that way? God did. Through his son Jesus. And then what does it look like in Jerusalem? It's full of beautiful buildings that people made with their hands. It's just such a dramatic change. And here you've got this whole feast going on. Everybody's attention is on this feast. Even his brothers go to the feast. And Jesus is basically alone for two, three days. He's got some downtime. If there's such a thing as the Son of God, what's he thinking? What's he doing? Because he's getting ready to begin the last leg of the work his Father has given him to do. His hour is encroaching. We learn in 14 when he gets to the feast. But before he gets there, in transition, John changes the scene. Look what it says in, in verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. And saying, where is he? Verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So he's a popular character. Everybody's talking about him. But they're all talking about him quietly. Uh, This verse speaks to the extent of the growing hostilities fear of the authorities is preventing free and open discussion you ever feel like your free speech even though this is a free country and you say what you want to say and some people say things they probably shouldn't say use that for the wrong reason but are there things we can't talk about now do you feel that on on the up or on the down is that trending up or trending down There's certain things socially, culturally, we probably shouldn't talk about. Not because it's right or wrong, it's because you're going to get some chin music for it. This isn't chin music. They could get in big trouble by being on the wrong side of, is he a good guy or is he drawing people astray? But that's the extent that it had gotten nobody's talking publicly everybody's talking secretly about what to do about jesus and that's the environment he's going to make the scene in they don't think he's there but he's going to be there they speak to this extent of growing hostilities look at verse 14 about the middle of the feast okay it's an eight-day feast seven days with one on the end so this is probably two to four days in that he's arriving late. Middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Here's what happened the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? That's one thing most college students would love to be true. <laughs> but it only works for the Son of God. We have to study. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So let's try to understand what he's saying to these people, but make sure we understand the setting first. We know how long he's waited. It's the middle of the feast, and though he'd come very carefully as to not alert anyone to his presence, he couldn't have picked a place more public than the temple in the middle of this feast. So out of nowhere, he's in front of everyone. You've heard about being fashionably late, right? Jesus could not care less about being fashionable. This is judiciously late. It's on purpose for the right moment. He's been talking about a time. This is the time for him to speak. The reaction of the crowd shouldn't surprise us and what we see is that they're taken back about Christ's uncredentialed uh, command of scripture. He knows a lot about the scripture but he hasn't studied so he's, he's uncredentialed. He has no degrees and where this might be cool in our culture to, to drag yourself up out of nothing and have something to show for it. In this culture in that realm or, or sphere that was not cool. To talk without tagging what you're saying to some other rabbi that was the way they did it if you have any authority in what you're saying to a group of people you had to tie on to the authority of other uh... experts they'd quote all types of things and he's not quoting anybody so they draw the foul i don't know about this guy he hasn't studied and he's not footnoting anything and that's the reason why he says back to them hey this isn't my message. This came from the one who sent me. And then he lowers the boom on them. Probably one of the most offensive things that, that, that could be said. And if you were serious about following God, you'd recognize the messages from him. That's a big statement. What would God say to a church or your home? Hey, you know... Uh, you had a problem with this or that if you really were serious about following the lord you would hear his voice through my word but that's what he's saying and what's brilliant about it is that they have called into question his competence in teaching and he immediately turns around and draws attention to their competence in listening Don't talk to me about being a bad teacher. I want to talk to you about being a bad listener. Now, that's something that changes these days. You know, when I was a kid, if you came home with a bad report card, whose fault is it? Mine. Sometimes these days, come home with a bad report card, whose fault is it? The teacher. They're not teaching the way my child likes to learn. I have to see somebody about that. Well, maybe that's similar to what's going on here. But he says in verse 18, he says, you don't want to do the Lord's will. So none of what I says makes sense to you. The one who speaks on his own authority, verse 18, seeks his own glory. The guy who footnotes everything is in with the other guys who just want to make their footnotes said more often. (laughs) But the one who seeks glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there's no falsehood. So he can be trusted. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? It'd be about the same as me coming to church this morning and starting out not with a description of what happened on vacation, but saying, you know, uh, you're in church and the church studies the Bible, but none of you obey it. He said, Moses gave you the law, but you don't keep the law. So he's saying inflammatory things. Nobody sleeps through this message on that day. And then he says, why do you seek to kill me? And this is where it seems the crowd snaps on him. The crowd answers, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? It's like they're finally just looking at each other going, "What? Well, what is he talking about? He's crazy. Who, he, who wants to kill him? I don't want to kill him. You want to kill him? He's demon-possessed. That's the way you would say somebody's crazy in that culture. They don't use that much today. Somebody cut you off in traffic. You're demon-possessed. <laughs> but it's a way of saying he, he's not thinking right. So the very same thing that happened after the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 when everybody... What is this? It's, it's getting out of hand again, it seems. But it's exactly what Christ wants to do. So Jesus answers them. He was saying before, if you're serious about God's will, you'll recognize his message in my words. Then he says, you don't do his will, and that's why you want to kill me. And they say, you're crazy. So then in verse 21, he explains to them why there are people that want to kill him. Jesus answered them, I did one work. He did more than that, but they know what one work he's talking about. It's when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath and got himself in so much trouble. He said, and you marvel at it. You're confused. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the father. So it it predates Moses, by actually Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So he's making the point, there is some work that you do on the Sabbath. Circumcision is one of them. Anybody remember on what day a young Hebrew was circumcised? The eighth day. Every now and then, you're going to have a kid born where that falls on a Sabbath. What do you do? Wait till the next day? Or do you break the Sabbath? Well, they would break the Sabbath. So he says in verse 23, If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole body well? He's basically saying, if you can wound a little man on the Sabbath, I can heal a whole man on a Sabbath. Don't that make sense? But after I got done with mine, you want me dead. Then he gets to his point. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You're judging wrong. He said you don't obey the commandments because you want me dead. Last time I checked in the Ten Commandments. You're not supposed to murder. And the reason why you're all mad about this. Is because you're looking at things very shallow. What Jesus is saying that it is time to make serious judgments. Not snap decisions based on what's apparent on the surface. Are knee-jerk reactions based off the first thing that pops into one's head. Their values are wrong. The fact that he's exposed over and over again. And if they really, truly, sincerely want to know their God, they'll hear his voice, God's voice through the sun, rather than chasing their affections in the opposite direction. Now, I don't know that you could find anything... In fact I know you can't it is more important that you make a decision a judgment, an assessment than who Jesus is, that's basically your eternal security, it's heaven or it's hell, what you do with Jesus you accept him, he gives you forgiveness, salvation you're home for heaven, you reject him, I don't believe him John three sixteen and then 17 says that the one who doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned already So it's heaven or hell. It all rides on what you do with Jesus. And droves of people are making this judgment. Some correctly, most the wrong way. Our standing with God has everything to do with one decision, one judgment, what we've done with Jesus. And to know what to do with this passage, because it it carries on from here. These are building one on another. But for us end of October. It's almost 2020. What do we do with this? Well, some passages are easier to put into points and easier to have things to take home with, but I thought maybe it'd be best to just try to see who we're most similar to and what we've seen in the passage. There's basically three groups of people other than Jesus. The first was the authorities. John uses the Jews to describe Those that are in authority and the ones who've actually put together their intentions to kill Jesus. And I hope there's nobody in this room who are like the Jewish authorities that want Jesus dead. We can probably scratch that off our list. But we can learn from them. And that they were the ones who were most rigidly against anyone who would claim to be like God. That's why they want him dead. The only problem with that is he is the son of God. So they're wrong. How does the statement go? There are none so blind as those who know for sure that they're correct. So that's, that's the most blind out of this group. Then you've got the Jews that John describes as pilgrims. They're all just coming in for the feast. Some of them would have been from Galilee and known Jesus. Maybe his brothers are there. They're supposed to be there. Maybe they're there listening to him. But there would be other Jews from places Jesus had never been before. So that's why some of them could say, what's he talking about? He's demon possessed. Well, they don't know very much. They don't know the background. They don't know about the Jews who have decided that they want him dead. So maybe their, uh, their blindness is different. But Jesus is telling them, specifically them, make your judgments based on reality, below the surface, what's going on. We've got a whole group that want my head because they don't understand God's law and this little technicality on breaking the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. So their judgments are based on something that, that, that's faulty in the first place. But then there's his brothers who seem to probably be in one of the more precarious positions. They're not the authorities who want him dead and they're not the pilgrims who've never met Jesus. They grew up with him. So they're in a a vulnerable spot. More so than any of the rest. Familiarity. Might be the one thing that's their biggest stumbling block. Because the, the authorities think they've got figured out as far as what he's saying publicly. But his family grew up with him. He did everything they did. He's a little older than them. But what they're doing in this story is not unlike what we've probably tried to do and many times over the course of our relationship with Christ or our uh, journey as a Christian. They try to help him out. They want him to be successful. But when it came down to it, They were actually more like the world than they were their brother. I mean, I don't know of any self-respecting Christian who wouldn't give a thumbs up to churches and people who go to church and Christian radio and we could use another Narnia movie or two. That's good for Christianity. Yeah, we'll pray for Billy Graham. Hope all that goes well. And uh, we'll go to church and maybe volunteer and do some things. And don't think that I'm being a smart aleck here. But at the end of the day, when we're sitting down with each other or at restaurants or whatever else, if Jesus were to pop in on what we're saying or what we're doing or what we're thinking, is it safe for us to go to the Feast, or it would be better to stay with him because thinking like Jesus might get you in trouble. Truth is, for a lot of Christians, there's no hope of us getting into any trouble for the right reasons. And probably a lot of risk in us getting into trouble for the wrong reasons. Now folks, in these verses talking about Jesus' brothers, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. That's one of his brother's. Can turn to the book of James. That's one of his brothers. The story's not done yet. And after the resurrection they will believe. And their lives will be totally changed. Peter's got a lot to learn. And shame on any of us Christians. Who think that all it is is just saying. I walked an aisle. Signed a piece of paper. I'm, I'm good to go. And that's it. No. No. Every day, you will be less like yourself and more like Jesus if you're doing this right. And it takes a long time. And if you think you can grow a Christian any faster than you can grow a kid in your home, it doesn't work that way. We're all learning. But here we have our brother, Jesus, telling us, don't make knee your reactions on the surface. Study this stuff. Know the truth. Make the right judgments, because in the end it all rides on what you do with me, and whether or not my words are what Peter said, the words of life. And why does John include this in the scriptures? He told us at the end, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing, you might have life in his name. The most misunderstood man in the world happened to be the Son of God. With that said, let's, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to try to understand it. And what we've understood, Lord, help us to obey. Lord, we ask you to keep, keep us close to you and, and to be patient with us like you did your brothers. Even though at times our, our minds wander as if our attention span is, is the size of a fruit fly. Lord, help us with our judgment that we'd make the right decisions and the ultimate decision to follow you and to be saved. We ask all this in your name. Amen.